0: Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 230. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is my marvelous co host, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry.
1: Hey Valerie, so good to have you back.
0: I am glad to be back. Today we're going to cover a lot of questions on the show about, is it okay to make your own cosmetics if you get ingredients from a legitimate source? Do hydrolyzed proteins really do anything? When should I apply my azelaic acid product? And what is the proper pH of hair care products? And of course, we'll have our chit chat. We'll talk about beauty science news all before we get into the questions.
1: Indeed, you know Valerie, I was out uh in the country. Actually, I went to my friend's lake house, which is more of the country than I am here in the city. But uh, there's something about me, but insects just love to bite me. <laughs> I mean, I've got welts <laughs> all over my body oh my goodness. up and down my legs. I kind of thought that maybe I had bed bugs in my house because I don't remember getting bit by any of these, but somehow my, like, stinger sense has gone off, and just, like, the next day I get all these welts.
0: I used to get uh, bitten a lot by bugs when I was a kid, and I feel like I don't get bitten as much now, but I also now live in an area where we don't have a lot of bugs. That's the one great thing about, well, there's a couple great things about living in California, uh, but one of the great things about California is you don't have a ton of um, biting insects, especially in Southern California. Now, when I go home to Ohio, it's totally different. Uh, where mosquitoes are practically the state bird. Same thing in <laughs> Illinois, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, in California, I don't have to worry about that.
1: Well, I have to say, I live in the city proper, so by my house, mosquitoes are not at issue. I uh, But, you know, you go out into the suburbs or into the country, and boy, they sure get me.
0: <laughs> oh, man, that stinks. You don't use bug spray or anything like that?
1: Well, when I remember, I do, Yeah, <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Because I'm a big fan of DEET, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think of bug spray too often because it's not really like a beauty product, right? It's more regulated as an insecticide or something like that.
1: It is. Although, you know, Avon had their Skin So Soft, which was like a cosmetic. But people, um, there's always that. My mom would always tell me growing up, oh, put some Skin So Soft on that Because something in their fragrance would uh, sort of... really." bugs. Oh yeah, that was I uh, uh yeah, I'm I'm sure other people in the Beauty Brains audience heard that skin so soft and the bug thing, but uh
0: Yeah, I'd love to know more about that whether it's like a urban legend and it was just a ploy to sell more product or does it really deter bugs.
1: It's a good question. I think I saw a study where it essentially said no, not really. <laughs> but I, actually uh, I think we talked about it on the show, but there was a, a study looking at bug spray, and this Victoria's Secret's perfume was able to repel bugs almost as well as DEET.
0: Oh gosh, that was before my time. I'd love for you to pull oh. that up and send that to me again.
1: Yeah, we'll have to, I'll have to check that out. Uh, <laughs> but you know, when I remember to put the DEET on, the bugs are are fine. I just don't remember until after I get all the bites.
0: <laughs> well, would you remember if you had Victoria's Secret in your bag?
1: <laughs> I might. <laughs> or at least I would smell better, anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, your wife might remember. Oh, we got to spray this everywhere. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, what did you see on the news this week?
1: Well, Valerie, it, it really wasn't this week, but um, some some lovely listener of ours sent in this uh, news report about whole foods. And I thought it would be uh, a good opportunity to talk about two subjects, uh, hypoallergenic cosmetics and class action lawsuits. First I'll start I with the love class
0: a good lawsuit and I'm so <laughs> excited to see this is going on. It just sometimes yes lawsuits are frivolous, but I think in this case we're really just, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is garbage and that's when right. the lawsuit gets good. So. Well,
1: uh, just on class action lawsuits, I, I did – actually, I did, and the Beauty Brains got it too, got a, a, a notice from Google that said we were uh, part of a class action lawsuit, and if we uh, register with them, we can get $12. <laughs> Apparently, there was <laughs> some giant class action lawsuit against Google Plus
2: for mm-hmm. them
1: giving out yep. improperly people's data. And uh, if we jump through a bunch of hoops, we can get $12, which just—the dem- <laughs> uh, lawsuit was settled for like $7.5 and
2: wow. it just
1: demonstrates to you these class-action lawsuits. Uh, y- you know, usually the lawyers are the ones who make all the money in them. Not the people. Yeah. So many people. Except if you're the—like one of the first people to file the case. And that's kind of what happened in this case. So this listener sent this uh, class action lawsuit against Whole Foods. Uh, it started in 2017, but it is still ongoing. There have been a couple of updates. Um, there have been, you know, just starts and stops. Uh, Whole Foods tried to get it dismissed. Um, and then uh, some parts of it got dismissed. But late last year, a judge ruled that this lawsuit could go forward. And it's kind of interesting um, The lawsuit involves some Whole Foods in-house brands, including their 365 brand and uh, the Wild brand and the Whole Foods Market brand. So basically, the consumer who started this claimed that Whole Foods was misleading consumers by saying their products were hypoallergenic, even though they contained known allergens and skin irritants. Uh, the plaintiff claimed that she bought the products thinking that they would be fine for her family, who in the past had negative reactions to some of, of the different chemicals. However, she claims that the products are actually, and this is in the lawsuit, um, <laughs> products are chock full of known skin sensitizers, allergens. Is that
0: a legal term, chock full?
1: <laughs> it, apparently. Um, and agents that cause serious skin damage, chemicals that cause serious eye damage lasting longer than 21 days, skin irritants, and eye irritants. Not uh, sounding very hypoallergenic there. No. Well, Whole Foods uh, tried to get the case dismissed and because they say that their labeling meets the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's standards for the use of the term hypoallergenic.
2: Could of be course,
1: true. Well... Of course, it's that's uh, an easy standard to meet because, according to the FDA, quotes they quote know of no scientific studies which show that hypoallergenic cosmetics or products making similar claims actually cause fewer adverse reactions than competing conventional products. <laughs> so basically, there are no standards by the FDA regulating the use of the term hypoallergenic. And do you know why that is, Valerie? Why is that? Well, it turns out back in the 1970s, uh, the FDA actually tried to make some rules about hypoallergenic and some standards. Um, But industry kind of pushed back on that, uh, filed a few lawsuits, and the FDA uh, lost. And so that essentially put the kibosh on them setting any rules. And so ever since the 1970s, um, the FDA has essentially said, Uh, we're not prosecuting anybody for saying hypoallergenic and we're not defining what it means. So buyer beware. Uh, If a product claims that it's hypoallergenic, it doesn't really mean anything. Anybody can claim their product's hypoallergenic.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are some basic tests that you can do, like a a repeat insult patch test on 100 subjects. They're chronically exposed to a product or an ingredient, and the amount of irritation or sensitization, if there is any, is measured over time intervals. And a dermatologist will review that data. And if it meets criteria, they'll say, yes, it would be considered hypoallergenic. But that, again, doesn't mean anything because anything can be an allergen. Anyone can be allergic to anything. So it doesn't necessarily mean allergy-free, which is what I think people think it means, but I think really it's like, oh, it has a low propensity to elicit an allergenic or sensitizing response on a subset of people. So I think there's a, a huge public misunderstanding of what that term even means, which is not doing anything a service.
1: And that was actually one of the defenses that Whole Foods said, whole foods said oh we're not claiming it's hypoallergenic we got a lab and that lab tested it and the lab an, an independent lab has said this is hypoallergenic so, oh jeez. so that that the so those those didn't they got some parts of it dismissed but those kind of didn't they didn't fly so this lawsuit goes on but you know back to this lawsuit you know based on the regulations i doubt that whole foods is actually going to lose this one uh you know, they'll probably settle it up, right? And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I figured would happen. But there are <laughs> – but let's – I just wanted to go through the uh, – what was claimed in the lawsuit. There are uh, – they claim that there are 22 problematic ingredients. Okay. And some of these are interesting. One of them uh, called out was organic uh, Arabic gum, so mm-hmm. gum Arabic, yeah, which is used as a thickener uh, in some natural beauty products. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, I looked up all of these ingredients on the CIR, and according to the CIR report, uh, the ingredient is generally regarded as safe as a food additive, but for topical products, there is some evidence of skin sensitization. Um, And interestingly, the CIR concluded at the end that there was insufficient data to support the safe use of gum Arabic in cosmetics. So, I mean, I guess that could be a problematic ingredient. Good enough
0: for the skin lining your intestines, not good enough for the skin facing the outside world.
1: Uh, go figure. I mean, I think there's there's still probably a, a, an appropriate level, but they just didn't have enough data. All right, here's another one. Uh, Calendula officinalis flower extract. The CIR says that uh, on this one, clinical quote, clinical testing of cosmetic formulations containing that extract elicited little irritation or sensitization. So I don't know how the lawsuit is claiming that as a problem. They also claim citric acid as a problem. Um, oh, gosh. And, you know, this one is not an irritant or a sensitizer in humans. Uh, but mm-hmm. in the lawsuit, they say, quote, <laughs> it is, quotes typified by ulcers, bleeding, bloody scabs, and by the end of observation of 14 days, discoloration due to the bleaching of skin um, and alopecia and scars, did you know it, did you know citric acid could do all this?
0: It's so silly what What are they looking at to say that citric acid can do that? Is it a safety data sheet? I mean, you can't take an ingredient by itself and say that it can cause an issue. You have to take a look at how it's used in a cosmetic product, how the cosmetic product is applied, what the dose is in the product. And two, with an ingredient like citric acid, its role is to dissociate and reduce the pH of the product. Yeah. So is it even really citric acid in a problematic form? It, no. Um, just so silly.
1: I Yeah. It, you know, it's strange, though, that in the CIR report on citric acid, they didn't say anything about uh, ulcers and bloody scabs. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, how th- well, Good. Th- Toxicologists must have missed that one. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was polysorbate-60. Now, in the CIR report, irritation studies, they found it was a non-irritant at a 1% use level. According to the lawsuit, uh, polysorbate-60 causes hives.
0: (laughs) Oh, interesting. I didn't know that.
1: I did not know that either, and it wasn't in the CIR report, so (laughs) I saw no evidence that that was true.
0: Wow, I've never even heard of that.
1: Apparently, you don't have to... uh, validate your claims in a lawsuit i don't know <laughs> and the most surprising one to me that they list here is glycerin uh, which which they claim this they claim it is a mutagen known to cause eczema in humans
0: <laughs> a mutagen Glycerin really? is not
1: a mutagen Mu-
0: mutates your dna where? wow
1: <laughs> i don't know where they got this and as far as causing eczema um, I've, I don't know where they got this, but in the CII report, there actually is one instance of a person using a glycerin alcohol mix who experienced eczema, and it went away when they stopped using it. But this was out of a test of 420 people, so that hardly is, like, evidence that uh, glycerin causes eczema. I, I oh, don't, dear. Uh, unless you're a lawyer, then it's ex- evidence, but I guess... But seriously, though, uh, by the standards of the lawsuit, really no product could possibly call themselves hyperallergenic, right? I mean, there isn't an ingredient, there isn't a cosmetic out there where you could look at, like, the MSDS and not find something that's problematic, right?
0: Right. Dose and how it's used is so important. You, keep, Everything can cause an allergy. Yeah. Just like in food.
1: Exactly. Now... Since this is kind of a meaningless claim, companies should probably stop making that claim because, I mean, the FDA doesn't define it, and maybe you'll be uh, subject to lawsuits like this. But as far as consumers go, uh, it will be interesting to see how this lawsuit shakes out. Um, But for consumers, you know, don't – hypoallergenic – you know, that it doesn't really have much meaning. And so, you know, you have to look at the ingredients and are there, whether they're ingredients that you're sensitive to or not, Uh, that's the only way you really know if a product is good. I think this hypoallergenic will probably go away because everyone can now just call themselves clean, which kind of means the same thing in people's minds. (laughs) And it's a lot less fraught with uh, difficulty.
0: Yeah, I tell you what, this lawsuit's disappointing to see. Now, you and I, if if whole foods were wrong okay we would be the first people to point that out okay Absolutely. are they a little bit wrong in making the hypoallergenic claim you know not they're not wrong it's just stupid because it doesn't mean anything
1: they're but, doing what the industry does and that's a that's a bad claim anyway so yeah yeah
0: but the accusations that the plaintiff is making with these ingredients are just ridiculous and I don't think whole food should lose because the plaintiff is ignorant and has no understanding of chemistry or how ingredients react on the skin I mean glycerin being a mutagen I mean that's that's insane
1: oh, yeah it's, it's crazy
0: yeah we we'll, we'll keep our eyes on it for sure
1: yeah that segment went a little long so why don't we just skip on to the questions
0: yeah <laughs> Our first question, it's an audio question.
1: Oh, yay. Let me hit play.
2: Hi, Beauty Brains. My name is Dev. I've been a longtime listener since about 2015, and I've even had an audio question answered before in episode 142. I was sad when Randy and Perry took an indefinite break, but I'm so glad to see that the Beauty Brains are back and making content after I stopped following the show. I have a few questions to ask. Number one. I make some of my own products using raw materials from Making Cosmetics because it's fun, and I've been making my own eyeliner, including magnetic eyeliner, for a while now. But Valerie, hey Valerie, said that that was a big no-no a few episodes back. Is it still wrong to make your own eyeliner, even if you're using raw materials from a trusted source, like Making Cosmetics? Or was that advice intended for people who use things like cocoa powder?
0: Well, I'm glad you love making your own products. There is nothing more fun than taking ingredients and putting them together and having something that you really enjoy that you can use. I do want to make a little correction. Um, So I I didn't actually say that like making products on your own is a no-no because I fully believe in craftsmanship and that people should be able to take uh, beauty into their own hands and make their own things and... Uh, I'm working on something that's actually kind of related to this. So I'm all for home crafting products, but there are a couple products that I feel like you should never, ever, ever make on your own. And one of those are things that you actually put on your eyes um, or very close to your eye area, just because yeah. the, the risk involved uh, with your eyesight and the health of your eyes. So that's just where I kind of draw the line It's like, you know, sensitive parts and your eyeballs are like probably probably off-limits. So I do just want to make that distinction. So is there something wrong with making your own eyeliner, even if you're using raw materials from a trusted source? No, there's nothing wrong with it. I think you just run a big risk in injury um, to yourself or to others. So I would just be very careful.
1: I think uh, making... Making products that you're poking around your eye is just not a good idea for people. I mean, unless you're an advanced formulator or you have a particularly clean area, uh, it's just fraught with problems. Another type of uh, thing that I see people uh, looking for formulas for online are sunscreens. I think it's a terrible idea for people to make sunscreens at home.
0: Yeah, the reason... I recommend to use products from bigger companies that are on the market is because they have the expertise to create products around the eye area. They're hopefully following good manufacturing practices. And they also understand regulations because you are not allowed to just put anything around your eye. Certain things are restricted from the eye area. So unless like you really, really, really know what you're doing, I would just avoid making products uh, for an area around your peepers. Um, if you want to make other stuff, uh, that's totally cool. I would just steer clear from the eyeliner. The other thing is making cosmetics is a great resource, but you, you don't, they're a reseller. They're not a manufacturer of raw materials. So, uh, they can change their source at any time. You don't necessarily know if they're doing um, adequate quality control on their ingredients. I'm sure making cosmetics is. They're a very reputable uh, reseller, but my yeah. point is, um, they're not the manufacturer of the raw material, and there's no disclosure on um, what you're getting. And even from a documentation perspective, when I'm formulating something, there's massive amounts of documentation. I like to check before I make a product, and um, yeah, even even though they're reputable, it's you know, unless you're dealing with the actual manufacturer of the raw materials yourselves, I would just stay away from really delicate body areas.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. Making cosmetics is a, they're a good source or a good source of information, but uh, you as a consumer, I mean, if I was, uh, if I had my own product line and I wanted to sell products, they're not, they're not someone I would necessarily use, uh, just because, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, you want to go direct to the manufacturer wherever you can and not to resellers. Uh, I know people at home are going, you know, the, the, they work great for that because they can sell a very tiny amounts. Uh, but if you're a serious brand, uh, y- you would want to go through uh, the, the chemical companies that actually make or specifically have contracts to dis- distribute uh, things like that.
0: Happy making. That's good for you that you want to make your own stuff. I hope you have fun.
1: And I was going to add that if you want to make stuff like skin lotions and hair conditioners and shampoos and body washes, those kinds of things are, they're all pretty safe to make on your own. Uh, it's just stuff around your eyes and stuff that's supposed to work as a drug. So I recommend people stay away from that. Yep. How about the next one?
2: Do all hydrolyzed proteins actually do anything or is it just marketing? Well,
0: um, Perry, Oh boy, I think our we... favorite
1: subject, proteins, <laughs> huh?
0: we can agree to disagree right off the bat here. We we've, we've gone back and forth about this a little bit on different shows even as recently as episode 221.
1: Yeah. Um so let's <laughs> let's just uh you know actually one day Valerie I think we should have like a, a debate format of protein pro and protein against <laughs> but uh, if we just yeah, lay we out our, our our basic <laughs> positions um, I've never I've used hydrolyzed proteins in products before, and I've n- I never found a huge benefit to them beyond uh, you know just working as humectants. But you know maybe my uh, particular way of evaluating them was uh, a little suspect. So <laughs> I mean yeah. in my mind uh, it uh, the the uh, hydrolyzed proteins the kind that you use doesn't really matter, but you're going to only get like humectancy and maybe some film forming effects.
0: Yeah. I mean, yes. Proteins, hydrolyzed proteins can be film formers. They can be humectants, but I, I really enjoy using and choosing different proteins in hair care because I really do feel there are some, Small differences between them, and depending on what your objective is, is the protein that you reach for. Um, I feel like wheat protein, hydrolyzed wheat protein, is excellent for strength. I think it's economic, it's readily available, and it's a very stiff, very heavy film former. And so, if I'm formulating for a strengthening product, wheat is my go-to. But There could be like a hydrolyzed rice protein, and I don't think rice is as effective as a film former as wheat. It still is technically a little bit of a film former, and I think rice protein is known for volumizing. So I think there's differences at at higher use levels. If you're just putting it in for label claim, absolutely no difference uh, what you choose, but I really think you know, to my touch, a woman's touch on my hair. You have long hair too now, Perry. But
1: <laughs> I, I do. But
0: <laughs> someone I haven't who, got my
1: hair cut since the pandemic started.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very long. It's like bursting out of his hat. Um, I, I feel like I can feel differences between them. Can a consumer? I don't know. But, you know, it's what I do literally every single day. And I feel like they make a little, little subtle difference.
1: Well, you know, that is an interesting point you bring up there. I remember when, back in 2005, when I had the most shampooed head in America, (laughs) that year I shampooed my head like 1,500 times. I felt that I got to be pretty good at uh, just picking up subtle differences between even surfactants and bubble thickness and rinseability. And I think I became like this professional shampoo evaluator. Yeah. And then I gave my new formula that was just I knew—I could tell it was completely different from the other formula, and I—so so I wanted to do a test. I took my new Brilliant formula, and then I just took, like, VO5, and I made it the same color and the same fragrance, and I gave two samples to people. And consumers—my my panel of 15 consumers, none of them could tell a difference.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You, I mean, you, ha- you have to live it every day, and I feel like there's a difference— and I'm sticking to it.
1: <laughs>
0: also, right. proteins are some of my favorite ingredients in cosmetics. We we play a, a little game here in the lab sometimes. It's not really a game, but we just say, if you had to leave the lab and go sell ingredients, what would you sell? And I would either sell oils, because I, I think lipid chemistry is very interesting. hmm or I would sell proteins. I actually did a protein research in grad school, so I've always had a little bit affinity for proteins, but I, I do like proteins.
1: I am a fan of proteins. I think uh, me given that same challenge, I would go with polymers, because then I, it's pretty much I could do anything.
0: <laughs> uh, polymers are, when people talk to me about polymers, I like fall asleep. I just get, <laughs>
1: I'm like, ugh. Yes, but you see, when I use the term polymer, I consider proteins to be polymers too, see?
0: Well, yeah, but in terms of, like, conventional polymers, yes, you know, like right. PVP, boring.
1: Oh, PVP is one of my favorite. Polyvinyl pyrrolidone, <laughs> you know, you can yeah. eat that.
0: <laughs> oh, really?
1: Yeah, it's, the, it's actually the, uh, the ingredient that you, you use to keep the M's on the M&M's.
0: Oh, that's right. Oh, who knew? That's, <laughs> ugh, fun fact.
1: <laughs> Looks like we got one more question. And this so one audio question, one audio file, three questions. There we go.
0: That's so great. And if you guys do that too, we'll give you three questions. We just we love audio questions. So pretty well, much whatever we'll, you we'll put just in, say, it,
1: we'll... we'll just say maybe we will. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> we might spread yeah. it over a few shows.
2: <laughs> yeah. Should I use a product like the Ordinary's Azelaic Acid Suspension 10% directly after washing my face before other products because of its molecular weight and pH? Or is it okay to put it on later in my skin regimen? Thank you, Beauty Brains. Your content is amazing. I love the podcast. I will be forever a fan. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. So we've talked about azelaic acid quite
0: a bit on the show. It's one of my favorite acids. I actually have it as a prescription from my dermatologist because I suffer from rosacea on a section of my cheeks. I get these pustules. And when I use the azelaic acid gel gel cream that is prescribed to me. It keeps the pustules at bay. I'm not going to lie. I use it all over my face. My dermatologist (laughs) is probably wondering why I go through so much of it. Uh, But it is really great. Uh, It's not a fast exfoliant. It really is something that you need to use frequently every day. And over time, you'll start to see some beneficial results. It's not quick like glycolic acid or lactic acid where it pretty much just like melts your face off. It's a very sure. slow-acting acid in the way it's used in these over-the-counter products. So I recommend to put it on the skin as soon as possible in the regimen because I I personally just think it should have as much skin contact as possible instead of being uh, put over other products or diluted uh, with other products. I find that when I put it directly on my skin, it actually forms um, kind of like a film on my face. And um, that's personally what I prefer to have, like that direct skin contact. I feel like when it's put, also that's the directions on the prescription um, that I have is put it directly on your skin, um, and that's what I do. I feel like... If I have put it on over other moisturizers, I because it is so long-acting or slow-acting, I don't know if there's any really any difference, but I just think um, putting it directly on the skin is the way to go. And for me, if that's what they're asking you to do in the prescription products uh, to get the closest and best delivery for the azelaic acid, I would do that in this, the Ordinary product, which is a, a great product, by the way.
1: You know, this is just the kind of question, though, that I'm not sure anybody's ever, like, done a proper study where they no. took people and experimented. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a lot of things in cosmetics, uh, you just sort of have to guess on what makes sense and, uh, and, and what go you with like it if it well. works.
0: Yeah. 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 But me personally, I put it right on my skin, and um, I'm very happy with uh, the improvement of my rosacea and everywhere else
1: that I put it. <laughs> and uh, your skin's a... Uh, Skin looks glowing after that skin peel a couple of weeks ago.
0: Oh, it's so great. I, like, literally cannot wait for my esthetician to open again so that I can get another peel. I'm like, oh. more, more. <laughs> wow. I, I don't know if that's how it works, but I want more.
1: <laughs> looks like we got time for one more question here.
0: Yeah, what is it?
1: Well, Noel says, I recently got into a discussion with a non cosmetic chemist about some things I'd previously thought were generally accepted facts regarding hair care formulations, specifically shampoo. The chemist challenged a lot of my knowledge, and I thought I'd get some uh, insights from a couple of pros. That's uh, that's you and me, Valerie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've read numerous places that hair's natural pH is from about 4.5 to 5.5, and that most hair products unless you're trying to lift the cuticle for some reason, should be in this range, including shampoos. Can you tell me what is the ideal pH for hair care products in general? And also, what is the pH of hair?
0: A great question, which I think, you know, if you're asking us, we probably have a little bit different of an answer than a conventional chemist that is not in cosmetic chemistry. And even if you asked a cosmetic chemist that worked in skin they probably couldn't even tell you this about hair. So we're very excited, Noel, that we can answer yeah. this question for you today.
1: Yeah, we talked about skin pH on episode 224, and we covered some of the issues with the whole concept. Um, well, talking about the hair's pH is also kind of problematic uh, in the same mm-hmm. way that skin pH is, because hair is a solid, and so it doesn't actually have a pH. Mm-hmm. Um, pH pH is a concept that relates to the concentration of hydrogen ions in a solution. Thus, solids just don't have pHs. Um, mm-hmm. It's more proper to talk about Harris' isoelectric point. Um, and this is the, quote, the, the moment of charge neutrality uh, in a determined pH, Uh, Basically, hair is made up of protein, so it has some places that have a plus charge and some places that have a negative charge. And the isoelectric point, that's what people sometimes will erroneously call the hair pH. There is a great reference book about this called The Chemical and Physical Behavior of Human Hair, or we just say robins.
0: Yep, the robins text, Yeah. Even for my chemists who who work on hair, this concept of pH and isoelectric point versus isoionic point is is pretty hard to wrap your head around. It's pretty deep in in the chemistry realm. And I I think people do use these um, terms interchangeably. And it, it can get really confusing when you think, okay, how does this relate to the hair care product and what pH it should be at?
1: But, you know, even knowing the hair pH, that doesn't really answer the question of what's the ideal pH of some hair care formula. This is kind of a subjective question. What does the question even mean? Is it the ideal pH to have the least stinging of your eyes or is it the ideal pH to remove the most sebum from your hair or the ideal pH to leave the best conditioning? What would an ideal pH for a hair care product even mean?
0: Yeah, I think it's a little more clear cut in skin just because you have this acid mantle on your skin and the goal of skin is I don't want it to feel stripped. I don't want my skin barrier, lipid barrier to be compromised in hair. It's not necessarily a living substance. It's biologically dead, but it's chemically alive. So pH is critical in thinking of, okay, what is the pH of my product based on what the product should be doing versus what's the best pH for the hair to remain in? It's, it's a little bit more complex in hair care.
1: Yeah, because when you're doing something like hair coloring, for example, or bleaching, mm-hmm. you want to have a high pH. It opens up the cuticle. It gets the uh, the reactions going more quickly. Yep. If you try to use a pH, a low pH for uh, a hair relaxer, for example, it's it's not going to work as well. So in cases like that where you have some specific thing you want to do, yeah, there probably is an I- a more ideal pH than another. But first things like shampoos there's that really an ideal ph at which the shampoo is going to clean the best right so i think what you what we do is like we say okay well as far as ideal goes it it depends what's your surfactant blend right uh, maybe some surfactants will work better at a lower pH or some work mm-hmm. better at a more neutral pH. Then you think about whether the ingredient might get into your eyes, right? And the pH can affect whether it feels stinging or not. And and in general, like if you're making a baby shampoo, you want it to be uh, more of a neutral pH and just to protect their eyes. But since since shampoos will go on your hair and that affects the skin, on some level you want it to, it could affect the skin mantle, right? The acid mantle. So that's generally why we formulate shampoos at a range of, you know, that 4.5 to 5.5 because that's uh, in about in line with what the skin acid mantle is. And it probably minimizes the amount of irritation that you're going to have to the scalp. So it just seems like a reasonable Range to shoot for. Now, but if people are telling you, oh, there's some ideal pH range of your shampoo, I don't think there's any support for that. Then, as far as something like conditioners go, if there's cationic surfactants in your conditioner, they probably Mm -hmm. will deposit better if you have a lower pH, say three and a half to four. So, you'll find a lot of conditioners are formulated in that range. But you know what? I don't know. Maybe it would work at a higher pH. It depends on your system, right?
0: Yeah, pH in hair care is really about the function of the product and how it interacts with the hair. I mean, you can have some shampoos at the 5.5 range, and you can have some at the 8 range. And as a consumer, can you tell the difference? Honestly, not really. It has to do, as Perry mentioned, what are the ingredients in the shampoo? What is the goal? What else is in there? How thick should it be? You know, what was the stability like? Sometimes we shift the pH for different reasons than consumer uh, performance enjoyment. So it's just, it's really complex in hair. Just know that whatever you're buying from the store, honestly, probably is going to be about the same. Like most shampoos are in relatively in a general range of a couple pH levels. Most conditioners are on the lower end. I mean, very rarely would you see uh, a conditioner at a pH of eight, let's say, just because Um, no one's going to make an emulsion with those ingredients. It just intrinsically is not at that pH level. So just know that kind of like whatever you buy from brand to brand is relatively going to be in the same range.
1: Yeah, and uh, this question, I like this question because it does point to uh, a thing about cosmetic science and beauty advice in general uh, that I think – people kind of overestimate what we actually know, right? Yes. You know, a question like this, I think what you would find is that there isn't a lot of good published research uh, about specifically what's the ideal pH uh, for hair care products. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First, most serious scientists, they're not really interested in the subject of cosmetic science. (laughs) You know, cosmetic science is an applied science, and there's not a lot of opportunity to make groundbreaking discoveries, right? So mm-hmm. for university researchers, there's not a lot of incentive for them to spend much time delving deeply into the subject. Now, I find the subject really interesting, and a lot of industrial chemists do, but serious researchers who are going to make breakthroughs in publishing in journals, they're not doing that so much.
0: Most research is done by the industry itself. So specifically about hair color, which is my forte, Most of the ingredient research and dye synthesis isn't done by universities or these big research institutions. They're done by brands who have an incentive to discover technology, to put in a product to make money or provide a competitive edge. No one's really just researching this on their own like, oh, this is fascinating, right? There has to be some benefit at the end of the day for whatever research organization is performing the research. And it just kind of gets prioritized a little bit lower.
1: Yeah. I mean, if a big company like P&G or some raw material company is trying to prove something, then they'll give out grants to researchers to do stuff. But they're not necessarily going to publicize that or tell other scientists what they've discovered. Right?
0: <laughs> no, because they want it for themselves. Yeah, exactly. which is, it's, I totally get it.
1: Yeah. Now, there is an outfit called the Textile Research Institute, and they do some basic hair research. But honestly, they rely on customers like P&G or Unilever to, you know, pay them to run studies, right? So much of what they discover, they're just not going to publish.
0: I've done a lot of research with uh, TRI, and it's not publishable because we don't want other people finding out about the research. We need it for ourselves, which, you know, is challenging. And very few companies choose to publish or even honestly file patents because it forces you to disclose what you're looking at. And that takes away the competitive edge.
1: And I think the, the other reason there's a lot in cosmetic science that we don't know is that it's really a complicated subject. I mean, many of the questions related to cosmetics, the, they're subjective questions. Um, and, you know, the, the questions, they don't usually have some simple subjective answer. I, I, I did like a a little run through in my head, like if I wanted to do a study to prove what the ideal pH of a shampoo is, uh, that would take a lot of tresses, a lot of formulations, and I probably wouldn't get a single answer.
0: No, in fact, even just in the hair research circles, you can ask one hair scientist about gray hair and the difference in fiber characteristics, and they'll give you their perception based on their research and you can go to another hair scientist and they'll say, well, I didn't really find that. We're seeing a lot of discrepancy in lipid content of hair fibers and where lipids actually exist in the hair fibers and different scientists are getting different things and it depends what kind of hair you have and what your methodology was. And it's just, there's no real conclusive answer. It's very complex. So it's, it's not straightforward at all.
1: And this is what I want consumers to know. Whenever you get advice about cosmetic products and about the characteristics of cosmetic products, you can kind of take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> there are really practically no universal rules when it comes to what makes an, an ideal hair care product, despite mm-hmm. what your uh, salon stylist will tell you.
0: Yeah, there's only the hair care products that make your hair look good. Doesn't mean that's they're right. ideal for everybody. Yeah.
1: Although everything that we tell you, you can completely believe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, take that with a big grain of
1: fancy-scented
0: right. Epsom salt. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all we have time for, Perry.
1: That is. Thank you so much for joining us today, Valerie.
0: I'm I'm glad to be back. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, my dear dog my handsome boy olive passed away unexpectedly a week and a half ago he was 13 so i appreciate uh being given the time to uh grieve for him
1: uh well i'm sorry for that um but we are happy to have you back
0: great everyone
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you get a chance, could you go over to iTunes and, or actually, it's Apple Podcasts now and leave us a review? Uh, that's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Actually, you could do that on Spotify, too. We're on Spotify, aren't we?
0: We are. Yeah. Don't forget to also follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at The Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at The Beauty Brains. And we have a Facebook page.
1: We are also on Patreon. If you want to subscribe, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and you can help keep us funded and keep us going through the new year.
0: (laughs) So we don't have to fill out those pesky Google class action lawsuits to keep us funded.
1: (laughs) i got to get my 12 bucks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty.
1: Thanks, everyone. Kittens